and welcome to the worst bestsellers where we read about artsy doomsday cults so you don't have to i'm renata and i'm kate and for this episode we read inferno by dan brown joining us to discuss the latest and least scientifically accurate robert langdon adventure is sarah genetics phd candidate and decrier of bad science and entertainment welcome sarah thank you very much thanks for picking this book I'm really sorry. I picked it like a year ago, and then I put it out of my brain until now, and oh boy. You know, I I said that sarcastically because that's kind of my habit, but I actually really enjoyed reading this book. I think it really helped that I do not know a lot about science. So I was just like, sounds great. Keep going. (laughs) That's one of the reasons that I generally enjoy Dan Brown novels. Like, I will say up front. I own not one, but two copies of both Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, because I had to buy the ones that had all the pictures. And I've read every single novel he's ever ever put out, and it's because I don't know that much about art history that I get to enjoy them. (laughs) You know, um, one of the reviews of this I read said that, like, no matter what, reading Dan Brown novels makes you feel smart, because either you feel like you're learning something about art history or whatever, or you know more than Dan Brown does, and then you feel superior for that reason. And so I feel like, like, I took a couple art history classes um, in college, and, like, I studied abroad, and we went to a bunch of, like, fancy European museums and stuff. So I'm kind of, like, right in the zone where, like, sometimes I'm like, oh, I didn't know that, or I Google it, and I'm like, that's not even a thing. Or, like, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, I already knew that. I'm super smart. So, and this, uh, this was at about that level for, like, the Dante and the art stuff. And then when it got to the science, I was like, I don't know any of this. Sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my problem with it was more, um, I, it's another one kind of like True Believer where the ending ruined the journey for me. Um, The ending is stupid. When I was reading it, um, and I, I, I know his trick and I know why this worked, But it was very, um, and I say this a lot, like compulsively readable. Like I was sitting there reading it and I just kept turning the pages and, you know, I wanted to know, especially at the beginning, what was going to happen next and what everything was. And the reason for that is because he does these short chapters that all end on a cliffhanger, even if the cliffhanger is something as minor as, you know, and then they duck down a hallway and the bad guys who were chasing them didn't see them. But the way he breaks up the chapters and kind of intersperses, there's like three different locations that he cuts back and forth between. So it'll be like Langdon and Sienna are running away from people who are pursuing them and they're in a tight spot. End of chapter, cut to the consortium on a boat for a three-page chapter, cut back to Langdon and oh, they're okay. Like just the way that he broke up all the POVs and ended each chapter where it was like it was one of those very tense like oh yeah suspense like I want to know what happens but then he asked me to buy one too many bizarre (laughs) convoluted things and then by the end the ending I was like well why did I just read these 500 pages if this is how they're going to decide to end it he's so good at though like honestly he repeats the same cliffhanger like multiple times (laughs) or like like, we've already seen this get resolved but then we'll have it presented again as a cliffhanger from a different character's point of view and I was still like I don't know is it still this or (laughs) Or is there new information that's what makes him hard 
hard to reread for me because mm. like I love to reread stuff that I have enjoyed and actually how I even got into Inferno was I uh I watched National Treasure as is my want and then I was <laughs> like I need more things like this and I rewatched the movies and I was like pumped and I was like okay I'm gonna read the new book and that's how I got there in the first place because I didn't want to just open Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons because I had to keep flipping through the chapters of the people I didn't care about to get back to the people that I did care about. <laughs> and on the first read-through, that's what keeps you going. Right. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Like, it, you know, there was a lot of, just, like, the way that he wrote was very tense and very, like, oh, yeah. And I can see how, like, rereading it, you'd be like, oh, well, I already know how all this all of the mysteries are gone. I like all the egomaniacal um, monologues, though. Those are the best, <laughs> best ones for me to reread. He also does this thing that Nicholas Sparks did in True Believer, where the characters will know information, and the narrative will say, like, oh, like, suddenly he figured out why this was happening, and it all made sense. And then it's not for, like, another 20 pages until he explains what he figured out. Uh. Right. Like, especially when Langdon and Sienna are running around through being chased. Like, there's a lot of times where he clearly figures something out. And it'll be from Sienna's point of view. And she'll be like, he clearly knew what was happening. But, you know, they were so busy that he couldn't explain what was happening. So she just had to blindly follow him and hope that he knew what he was doing. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, initial impressions uh, are out there now. Let's maybe try to summarize the plot. Plot or plots? <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, go if you if you've oh, got it. Go. I was gonna say. Well, we start. Uh, we start with convenient amnesia. Yes. The best um, kind of amnesia. Yeah, the best <laughs> kind. So Langdon wakes up and he's in a hospital and his head hurts and he doesn't know what's going on. So we get to do a whole lot of backfilling the story. He doesn't even know where he is. He thinks he's in Massachusetts. He's in Italy. Yeah, that happens to a lot of people, I think. Mm. <laughs> um, and so he meets this this doctor, Dr. Sienna Brooks, with this, this blonde ponytail. The blonde ponytail is very important to her character. Yeah, she's constantly <laughs> called the blonde ponytail the doctor. Yes, let's talk about epithets for a second. <laughs> <laughs> or let's not. Uh, so... All of a sudden, a doctor is killed, and now we're on the chase, and we're being hunted, but we don't know why. And then it turns out Dante's involved. Obviously. Somebody else is going to have to help me out here. So, yeah. Well, so they have to flee the hospital because they're attacked, and so he and the, the ponytail doctor go back to her apartment, and she has grabbed his clothes from the hospital, which he thinks is weird, but then... She reveals that he'd had a secret tube hidden in his jacket, and she wants to know what the secret tube is. Turns out the secret tube is a secret, like, laser projector that projects <laughs> Botticelli's image of of Inferno. But it's been slightly altered, so there's, like, a code built into the laser image. It, <laughs> it's like the Da Vinci Code, but with Laser Floyd. See, and this... <laughs> And that's what I'm here for. That's what I want in a Dan Brown novel. <laughs> da Vinci so they, Code meets Laser Floyd. <laughs> so they, um, he, she urges him to call the American consulate, but she doesn't want to be involved. And he finds out through snooping through her things that she is a child prodigy 
who has like this rare weird medical fake condition and that she's like essentially incognito but he doesn't tell her that he knows but he understands like why she she needs to be on the down low so he calls the american consulate and tells them that he's staying at a hotel across the street and figures he'll see the consulate people drive up and like run down and join them but instead of the consulate people driving up an assassin drives up so they freak out and they're like oh my god like the u.s government is trying to kill you we need to run and just as they're preparing to run, even more killer-type people in black military gear start flooding the streets. So they're on the run, and they have to get to, he figures, based on all of the Dante imagery, that they need to get into old Florence, because that was, like, a place that was very important to Dante. So probably it would make sense that any clues would lead them there, Uh, So they sneak into old Florence and are being chased by these people. Like there's police blockades everywhere, not letting them into the city. And um, they have to sneak through like back passageways and through caves and all sorts of shit and eventually manage to elude their captors and end up where they need to end up, which is a museum inside old florence also um some sometimes in here we're getting the perspective of vientha who's who's trained or who's following langdon and it it's implied that she wants to kill him but i guess in retrospect she never actually said she wanted to kill him there's a reveal coming about her much later, but for yeah. now she's like just trailing him around, and occasionally we get status updates from her. We also occasionally get status updates from the consortium and these dudes who are apparently on a boat somewhere who talk about this client that they have who paid them to enact his last wishes, which are to up a really creepy video to quote unquote world media on a particular (laughs) date (laughs) and we've forgotten one thing which is that Langdon has these glimpses of this woman with silver ringlets oh right because he he has convenient amnesia but sometimes he, uh, he has these visions of her yeah so he doesn't know who she is or what she means but she is wearing he remembers her necklace doesn't he I think so. I think so. So he doesn't know who this mysterious woman is, but he he knows that she's important. And also, the visions, she seems kind of evil. Yeah. Yeah, she's telling him to seek and find. Yes. And also, he's getting images of a person wearing, like, a plague mask. One of those, you know, like, the creepy, like, bird-like, long-nose plague masks. And in the creepy video... With the consortium dudes, someone in the video is wearing a creepy plague mask and keeps referring to themselves as the Shade and how he's going to unleash unleash the plague that will save humanity. And just like Dante, you know, humanity will go through hell to find heaven and it's coming. Oh, also, God, there's so much. Um, <laughs> there's so much to When he... At first, he thought he had killed someone because when he because he doesn't remember, and when he woke up, he he was saying very sorry, very sorry. But then he realizes he wasn't saying very sorry; he was saying vasari, 
which now I don't actually remember what that is, but it was significant to the plot. That's <laughs> how they get to the museum that they have to get to in old Florence. Is it the name uh, of the museum or the name of the artist? It's, it's the name of the artist. Yeah, it does all these murals in the museum. Okay. Yeah, and so he he figures out the thing from the the laser uh, image, and he figures out that when you rearrange it, it says Circatrova, and that's the same words that are on a painting. I have wikipedia open to help me out here okay. by sorry and that's in the palazzo vecchio which is where they end up and then they meet the greatest character marta yes yes um marta recognizes robert and he like really stupidly tries to pretend that he knows who she is because he very quickly realizes that she met him last night which is the part period of time that he can't remember and he goes back and forth between, like, playing along and acting like he knows who she is. And then, like, stupidly forgetting his circumstances and saying things that really obviously imply that he's never met her or been here before. Yeah, he is um, not good at it. And we get, like, a whole chapter from her POV. And she just thinks that he is, like, the douchiest idiot in the world. And it's pretty refreshing. Yeah. But it, it's kind of annoying, though, because we get the sense that, like, that she's mis- mistaken or, like, whatever. But, like, she's not. She's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he's there. He, it turns out that the night before he had been there with this guy to look at a particular death mask that belonged to Dante Algieri himself. And when she takes him to look at it again, because the message that he decrypted says, like, look through the eyes of death. And he figures, oh, a death mask. The mask has been stolen. Gasps. So they go to look at the security footage to see who was in here and who took it. And it turns out that he took it. <laughs> he took it along with a morbidly obese friend who has died of a heart attack in the last 12 hours. Oh, God, like his, right. his final act was helping him steal this mask, basically. So there's, like, some cool, like, random fat shaming in there. And then back to the art history. Yeah, yeah. And then when he finds out that his friend has died, um, his friend left him a cryptic message about how to find the mask that they stole, basically. Right. Oh, God. And there's so much in there because uh, the, the message clue involves a certain verse of the Inferno poem. And he's like oh, Sienna, you don't remember it, do you? And even though she's, like, a genius of the perfect memory, she's like, no. And he's like, oh, I have a perfect memory also, but also no. It's like, why do you... Okay, whatever. You don't have perfect memories then. Um, Yeah. But then there's so much about him being like, I wish I had a smartphone. Let me borrow the smartphone. Oh, no, like, (laughs) the data is run out. Or, like, it's so convoluted. (laughs) And they're like, oh, well, we'll go to the gift shop of the museum, but it's, like, close. Like, fuck, it takes them forever to get this fucking poem, but they get it eventually. Yeah. Yeah, it's like borrowing the guy. And that happens, like, that happens in every Robert Langdon novel. Just buy a fucking iPhone, dude. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I, I guess he's been robbed or whatever in this instance. Yeah, well, but... just remember to sew a backup iPhone into the lining of your jacket <laughs> to your your Laser Floyd projector, and you'll just be fine. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, that is true. When I started realizing that I never had Tide pens when I needed them, I did go out and buy six Tide pens and put them in, like, all my purses and all my desks and everywhere. And he, obviously, he's an award-winning 
world-renowned, super sexy symbologist, he can afford to buy a few backup iPhones. Yeah, he is a very famous professor. Like, I'm trying, I've been trying to think who the real world equivalent of, there's, there's no one. It's Indiana Jones. Oh, right. (laughs) I I guess maybe Stephen Hawking would be, like, the closest, but, but different. Yeah. Very different. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Imagining Stephen Hawking waking up and not knowing he's in Italy. <laughs> Probably because he partied too hard. <laughs> because he so, stayed up too late at Laser Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they they figure out where the mask is hidden after like solving this riddle and doing all this other stuff and um, when they get there and they find the mask, there is another clue, right? Yeah, like it's on the back of the mask, like covered in ges- gesso, gesso, whatever that yeah. stuff is. Mm-hmm. And so he has to like very, very carefully rinse this layer of stuff off the back of the mask to reveal another clue. Kind of like putting uh, lemon juice on the Declaration of Independence. You have to do it yeah. very, very carefully. Just like that. Yeah. By the way, a lot of the stuff we're skipping over, or like, I I really enjoyed a lot of this. I really enjoyed um, kind of the armchair tourism, and like, he's really actually pretty good at describing like Italy and the museums, and like, oh, like I liked it, but also it's dumb, <laughs> but also I liked it. No, I feel that. I totally feel like that. Like that's what that's what I'm here for when I come to a Dan Brown novel. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, so so they find out um, at this point that the riddle and that the person who's kind of sending them on this chase is this guy, Bertrand Zobrist? Zor? Zobrist? Zobrist? Dr. Z. Yes. Who's like an eccentric geneticist who is obsessed with overpopulation and... At this point, we're told that Sienna doesn't really know that much about him, but she remembers reading some articles about, like, how he has these crazy theories about halting human production, reproduction, because of his fears of overpopulation, and that he's been rumored to be working on, like, some giant project that will solve the problem for good, and how he's like kind of crazy and even as she's describing it him to Langdon he's like oh like you kind of sound like you agree with this guy and admire him and she's like oh well I don't know why you would get that foreshadowing from this (laughs) but I I think it's around in here where there was just a part that I liked where Langdon like notices a clock tower and he's like oh it's the same one that James Bond threw a villain out the window of in um (laughs) in the in the film Moonraker and uh Moonraker has kind of the same plot as this but with more art history and less Jaws but (laughs) I I liked it and also I like Moonraker (laughs) Yeah, wow. I'm also, I'm I'm glancing through Wikipedia, and I forgot that there's, so now we know about the idea of Zobris working on some sort of plague, and there's very conveniently a dude around who's having trouble breeze- breathing, and he's wheezing, and he's got a rash on his face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like yeah. that yeah. guy. <laughs> he, he claims that he's from the World Health Organization, 
and that he was working with Langdon and he was the person who picked Langdon up in Massachusetts and brought him to Florence and kind of pulled him on to this whole thing. And Langdon, of course, is like, oh, I don't remember anything. And Sienna's like, oh, yeah. And like explains for the first time to any other human, like, oh, he has retrograde amnesia and he can't remember anything. Um, no, she she explained it to Marta also. Because oh, Marta was like, Marta what is wrong with you idiots? And <laughs> Sienna was like, okay, backtrack. Real thing is amnesia. Yeah. But uh, only after like so much like annoying fumbling around. Like, it's the first time that she's just direct, they're direct with a person. Right, and and take one. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so he's all, he looks like he's infected because he's, like, itchy, and he has, like, this weird rash, and Langdon's like, oh my god, like, what if he has the plague, because we're researching plague things, and plague, 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 and Sienna's like, if he had the plague, he works for the World Health Organization, like, he'd never come out where you know, if he were infected, and then he, like, mysteriously collapses. Yeah, and this is the point in the book where you have to stop trusting anything. Right. Like, this is the point where nothing is sacred, nothing is safe. (laughs) (laughs) And anything, anything, uh, anything's up for grabs from here on out. (laughs) I've, I should pull up Wikipedia, too, because there's so much, I've lost the order of, like, what yeah, well, we finally, so he goes and he meets Dr. Elizabeth Sinsky, okay. who is the silver ringleted woman. Every every of woman in visions. here is, yes, of his visions. Every woman in this book is described by their hair, except for Marta, who is pregnant. And obviously, that trumps your hair. Right, right. Um, but he, to, to meet her, so after the guy collapses, Sienna's like, oh, like, he's dying of something. And... Internal now Lincoln bleeding. like super thinks it's the plague. Yeah, internal bleeding. I should also pull up Wikipedia. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Lincoln like super thinks it's the plague, but then the black dressed soldiers come and um, are chasing them, and so he gets captured, and Sienna escapes, and when they capture him, they bring him to the silver haired ring lidded woman. Yes. Yes. And also he they'd seen her before, and it seems like she was drugged, right? Yeah, she was, like, yeah. in the back of a car and seemed to be, like, going in and out of consciousness or something. And also, we had occasionally had things from her point of view, and they would, like, we would see them inject her with something, and then she would get really woozy or whatever. Right. Oh, I totally forgot about that. So it looks like there's all these references to, like, how she's sick, but the soldiers are under orders not to help her or do anything to make her better until they find Langdon. And is that ever really explained? Yes. Stupidly. But yes. She has a condition. Fuck. What does she have? Um, seizures or something. She has something. And they've been giving her these hourly injections that she prescribed herself to keep her going um, until, cause she didn't want to like go in for like actual hospital treatment so they're injecting her hourly with this stuff, but it makes her drowsy, but... Yeah. She's also, I don't think we ever said, maybe we did, she's the director of the World Health Organization. Also, she is tragically infertile. Yeah, that's um, actually much more important to know about her. Yeah, she is very upset. Even though she is in her 60s now, she still every day feels the pain of not being able to have had children at any point in her life. Every time she sees a mother and child, she feels a pang. Every time. I'm just gonna... I know I've addressed this before in the podcast. 
there's other ways to acquire a baby if you're not physically able to carry one. And I, I know that can still be difficult and there's still, you know, a lot of people would definitely prefer to do that as their means of acquiring a baby. But it's still not the only way. Yeah. Just- also, if you're the head of the World Health Organization and like widely respected and probably widely compensated well for your job probably you can afford to acquire a baby in another way right and also it's not even because she later on she briefly addresses how um her necklace that she wears was given to her by the man who wanted her to bear his children and then he left her um, I guess because she couldn't. So that just but, makes him a fuck up. Like that has nothing to do with her. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, but it's like, but she mentions that, but she never once mentioned anyway. So that's why I didn't adopt or like, anyway, that's why we didn't even try uh, a surrogate or like whatever, yeah. whatever. Now she's mother to the whole world. Yes. But we have to start planting these seeds of infertility and how, you know, how terrible it is because we have to make we have to we have to set the stage yeah so he's brought to this woman with the silver ringlets and the infertile woman with the silver ringlets (laughs) and all of the dots from all of the different points of view start to be connected together and we she explains about how the mysterious client who had employed the consortium was the guy Zobrist and he had committed suicide and he was like crazy obsessed with the end times and overpopulation and um, Dante and so obsessed that he created some kind of plague to get the world's population down to 4 billion, which is apparently the number that can be sustained for science yeah, and it's funny, actually, because the best science in the book is the impending overpopulation of the world, because, like, that's actually legit, and all of the stuff that gets quoted in that regard is uh, pretty pr- pretty right on, actually, so. Well, the, that's horrifying, yeah, thanks. Yeah, the, the best science in the book is the most terrifying science. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll be dead before then, so it's fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not, okay, I'm not an expert, as I've stated before. I don't know that much about science, but I do um, have a lot of friends who do public health work, and so I just occasionally read articles that they share. And one thing that, at least in those circles, is talked about is how um, talking about access to birth control and all of that and, like, forced sterilization is something that gets thrown around as like the solution to this but the way it's talked about is often like really kind of like racist and problematic and it kind of is here um but not anyway it's weird what happens we haven't even really explained what happens yet so i'll just throw that out there and we'll move on yeah well and that's that'll come back around in the end again too i think in some of our readings where like the the who's plans to address the overpopulation problem are better access to birth control and like tax incentives for small families and like stuff like that but yeah like it it is a a legitimate issue (laughs) right but probably we shouldn't solve it the way that this book solved it it's just like my personal scientific opinion right 
Um, oh, another thing I've been wanting to mention is that the very beginning of this has a note saying that the consortium is a real organization, but he's changed the name of it. And I'm like, so, in, and I know that's like his whole thing, but I'm so intrigued. Like, seriously, there's like seriously secret organizations that go around and like upload your files to the media for a price. <laughs> and okay. I, anyway, yeah. they're going to do uh. it. Have we seen the video yet? Because we haven't talked about what the video shows. Yeah. Um, I think, so actually, the- that's revealed maybe even later in the plot. Because first we get Langdon and and Elizabeth putting together their knowledge. And I think slightly after that, then the consortium is like, ooh, hey, us too. Well, they, there's been a couple bits so far where there's, like, that one guy who works at the consortium who's, like, the a provost. techie. Who's, like, well, not the provost. Oh. Like, the guy who... Oh, the guy who's telling the provost, hey, we shouldn't do this. And the provost yeah. is like, this is what we do. Because he keeps watching the video and being like, this is fucked up. But the provost is like, it's not our job like to be his editorial board. Like, we, we get paid to post the video. And he's like, uh, but he's talking about killing a lot of people. And it's pretty creepy. And maybe, uh, we, maybe should. we should. <laughs> yeah, do something about it. I don't know. Just a thought. Just a thought. Yeah. Um. So Elizabeth continues to uh, exposit at Langdon about how she was the one who broke into Zobris' safe deposit box and she found the vial that has the Pink Floyd Dante laser projector and contacted Langdon in order to get him to come and help her like decode it and shit but then you know he disappeared last night and they were afraid that he had gone to the other side so that because he said they they were afraid he wanted to unleash the plague i guess right and so the soldiers who were after him were never sent it was never a kill mission they were just sent out to find him on behalf of the world health organization to bring him in if he had indeed decided to unleash the plague. Just like in the least reassuring way possible with yeah. a bunch of men and 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 a, a lady in black and military and makes you feel real comfortable, real confident. Right. So, oh, we're like, are we even halfway through the book at this point? <laughs> Ish. <laughs> we're getting there. Um, so then... Then the consortium gets involved, too, because the, the provost is the head of the consortium, and he he watches the creepy video about the plague, and so he's like, okay, no, let me let me call in and, and help them out with this, because this is, like, too far even for our shadowy organization that has no morals. And then he... Wait, wait. Was it the consortium that, that gave Langdon amnesia? Yes. They gave him uh, yes. some special drugs that they, gave him amnesia. They gave him Forget Me Now from Arrested <laughs> Development. <laughs> um, and they, like, faked his bullet wound and faked The hospital wasn't hospital. a real hospital. Also, he would be motivated to solve the mystery. Right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so weird. And, like, Sienna is, was an actress and... Like, the woman in black who was chasing him, who we thought was an assassin, was an actress. And, like, the dead guy who was killed in the hospital was an actor. And then he was the same actor 
right? Who collapsed. Yeah, yeah, so the guys with the, the rash and everything that they thought might have the plague was the actor who got killed in the hospital in the very beginning. And the reason that his he was all bruised was because his squib misfired and he had a rash from the spirit gum that they used to put on his mustache in the hospital. <laughs> yes. Wait, hang on. I've lost track. Why did the consortium do it? Like, I thought, what was their motivation for doing all of this? Because they didn't, I thought they didn't, I mean, until recently when they watched the video and they're like, that's fucked up, I thought they wanted to stop Langdon. Well, what? so, I'm trying to remember, because the little, the laser Floyd thing was in a safe deposit box and Elizabeth got it and gave it to Langdon and then they got worried that Langdon was going to side with the plague and so but he hadn't finished solving the riddle and they were worried so I think like I, I don't know maybe they were like well shit we need him to finish solving the riddle but we don't want him to turn on us so we're gonna make him forget and like we're gonna just like restart this whole mission I'm <laughs> Just like refresh. <laughs> yeah, the, the timeline never really made sense to me. I feel like he put more effort into the double, triple cross, and everything. Yeah. Well, because I mean, I didn't even question it until now. It was just like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I turned the page. So like, oh <laughs> yeah. yeah, like well, they watched the video and they realized it was bioterrorism. So like, wait, but how did that line up with? <laughs> The missing day, yeah. Well, so there was. So I'm gonna go back to this reveal and see if I can keep keep discussing. I'm gonna flip back through this. Yeah. So I'm basically I'm I'm still just staring at the same three sentences on Wikipedia, trying to remember my what, trying to remember this. But so the thing we haven't talked about with the video is like it's creepy. There's the imagery of like the death mask, and there's this like really eerie balloon shaped thing floating underwater that looks like it's full of like evil. and and there's a date and so like there's a date in the video and they something to do with there was a specific date that the um the lockbox items which included laser floyd got released and like everything has a particular and and the suicide has set set these events in motion basically right yeah Yeah. and uh, now that I think about it, they never actually say when the date is. They just keep saying, like, it's two days from now or, like, you know, it's the end of the week. So maybe all of the consortium things were happening not before the there, there are definitely some flashbacks that aren't, like, clear. Well, yeah, and then, I mean, when we finally get to the reveal of what the date actually is, oh, we need to finish this. Yeah, okay. Let's get to yeah. the end and then we can come back. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it turns out that like everybody's working together. The consortium is working with the World Health Organization, and they want to get rid of this Zorbrist guy's plot, plague plot. Except then it turns out that Sienna was a triple cross, and even though she was an actress hired by the consortium, she was actually Zobrist's lover and protege. Wah, wah, wah. And there's a there's a fake reveal earlier where you think that his lover is the is the guy who has the fake plague. 
Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also because everyone has these code names of initials and then dash at the year that they would turn 100. And so we know that the spy is FS dash whatever number. And then um, the the fake play guy is named Ferris. So we, we've got the F. But it turns out that Sienna's real name is Felicity Sienna whatever. So it, that it's her. <gasps> She's Mr. F. Secret so, supporter and lover of Zobrist. <laughs> so, um, she uses Robert to figure out, like, how to solve the r- riddle and where the plague is and, like, goes rogue and goes after it. So, Robert oh, we, has... Just real quick, we totally forgot to mention, I think, that we left Florence and we've been in Venice for a while. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, they went to Venice eventually. And now we're about to leave Venice again. Yes. Um, so she leaves, um, and Robert has to team up with everyone to stop them, and... And occasionally uh, they're like, wait, this is huge, shouldn't we, like, call the police or, like, somebody more important? And then they're like, no, we got it. <laughs> yeah, because they, they think they're racing against the clock for the date in the video because they think that the date in the video is when this bag full of evil underwater is going to dissolve because they figured out that it's like a slowly dissolving balloon that contains the plague and once it dissolves, then the plague will be released. Into the and water. So, into the water. Water source, right. And then we figure out what the water source is. Which... Yeah, it's in Istanbul. Not Constantinople. Not <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're so good at these timely uh, references, you guys. <laughs> yeah, so it's in the cistern in the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, which has to do with some dude that does he tie back into? Does he he's, tie back um, into Dante? Yeah, right. He's um somehow. Oh, he was yeah. the Doge. Oh, that's right. This book had that whole page on the Doges. <laughs> yes. Very meme. Much art history. <laughs> I, I Googled it when I first read it, and somebody like somebody had made lots of, of, of Doge memes out of the Italian Doges, and it was great. Doge is Italian for Duke, by the way. Or internet for dog. <laughs> So yeah, there was like some huge concert happening in the cistern and they were like, oh no, people came from all over the world and so they will get exposed to this plague and then they'll take it back and oh my god. Yeah, and they also, like when he's chasing Sienna and like trying to figure it out, he thinks that she's already broken the balloon and that is like slowly infecting everyone, but then they find out that she didn't do it, that... It was um, dissolving, slow, like like slowly dissolving in the water, and it had already burst like a week beforehand. So everyone was already infected, and the date that was in the video was not the date of infection, but the date that like the virus would have spread to the maximum degree, so that everyone in the world would now be infected with the virus. Yeah, so dun-dun-dun, you're a week too late. You've been late this whole time. And she wasn't running to burst the balloon. She was running to stop it. Quadruple cross. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because she didn't trust the government 
to handle it correctly. She was sure that they would like secretly keep it and continue experiments and that it was too important and too deadly to be allowed to exist for research purposes. Yeah, she's real X-Files. She doesn't trust anyone. Yeah. By the way, let me... because she's damaged goods. Oh my god. We... Okay. (laughs) Real quick. She, She has out of nowhere this like chapter of her tragic backstory, which we're gonna do a dramatic reading of, but it's so terrible. It's so terrible. She was like a genius child, and she became preoccupied with how the world is fucked, so she went to do some volunteerism in the Philippines, and um, she realized she was like overwhelmed by the poverty there, so she like ran away from the group, and then was almost raped, and then saved by an old woman. And then the stress of that was so bad that it gave her alopecia, and that's why. Did we ever reveal actually that she her blonde ponytail is a wig? Because it didn't. is. It's a wig because of stress, because of her volunteerism induced near rape, which is it's like so horrible and so just out of nowhere, like and not mm. really like relevant. No, no. Other than once we find out that it's a wig, that we have to learn more about it. But see, Dan Brown falls prey to, you know, there are two ways to make a female character interesting, rape and infertility. So he's got those two checked off. Right. But it it would just be so much more interesting if it was even just without that and her just being like staggered by the scale of poverty. Like, fine, fine. Okay. But then also this. Yeah. Um, So they find out that she was, yeah, like a a quadruple cross and the... The information that she gives, she, like, agrees that she'll go with Elizabeth to the meeting of the World Health Organization in Geneva to talk about what she knows about the virus and try to help them solve the problem. And in exchange for that, like, she doesn't have to go to jail. And let me tell you how this virus works. Please do. Yes. This virus apparently has some sort of DNA... No, it's going to modify our DNA to cause infertility. But if we made the whole species infertile, we would have no more humans. And that's not the goal. The goal is to reduce the population to the perfect number that is sustainable and to reduce it in much the same way that the Black Plague did by about one-third. So, randomly, in one-third of people, the virus that has mutated everyone's dna will only activate in one third of people so one third of the population is already infertile and it will then be passed down and this will propagate forever and one third of the human population will always be infertile and we fixed the overpopulation problem yeah (laughs) it's ridiculous and also the part that like really threw me and made me kind of like hate the book <laughs> is that so they they find this out and they figure it out and they're like oh like we're gonna work to fix it and then both Elizabeth and Sienna are like well maybe this is a good idea so we're not actually gonna fix it after all they don't so, explicitly say that they're just like wishy-washy about it like essentially they there's this whole book exists to stop a plague that happens anyway and then they're like, oh, it's actually not bad like we thought, so we're okay. They're just like, man, counteracting this would be super hard. Well, 
<laughs> like they were against it when they thought it was going to murder people, but when they found out that it's not going to kill a third of the population, just make them all infertile, well, you know, whatever. There's a lot of shopping to be done in Geneva, so maybe they'll just do that instead. Yeah. So that's the book. And then, like, Langdon, Langdon's been missing his stupid Mickey Mouse watch that he's obsessed <laughs> with, like, the whole book. And, like, the literal epilogue is he gets it back, and he's happy, and he goes home to Cambridge. <laughs> oh, yeah, we hit. Did he get trapped in anything claustrophobic in this book? I don't know. If, well, they're escaping something. It's He's not really stuck in it, but they have to, like, pass through some okay. kind of fake wall or something. I was like, did we did we hit all of our Robert Langdon must-haves? Yeah. I don't, uh, I've, I've only read, I mean, I read Da Vinci Code and I liked it, but I haven't read any of the other ones, so I, I couldn't play Robert Langdon bingo very well or anything. Oh, I could. Well, I don't remember Skeleton Key. Like, I know that I read it, but I don't really remember it. Angels and Demons is the best one, hands down. I read Angels and Demons and The Da Vinci Code. I read The Da Vinci Code when, like, it first came out, and it was, like the biggest bestseller ever and everyone was reading it and you could buy it at like Rite Aid checkout. And then I read Angels and Demons after I liked it, but I don't actually remember pretty much anything that happened in either of them. Well, I, like I said, I watched the movies again last year because I do really like them because that, that brand of like history, you know, intrigue stuff, like I eat that shit up. Um, There's a reason that National Treasure, I would watch, any National Treasure movie that ever got made, and I would love it and purchase it and treat it with care. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like, I, I – it was one of those that it was, like, you know, spreading, like, wildfire through my senior class. Everybody was reading it. And, of course, you know, I was at Jesus School, and so we had to have, like – we had, like, the teen Bible class on Sunday mornings at my church was about the Da Vinci Code. You know, we I was part of that era of, okay, well, we all read it, but it's just fiction. But we have to talk about it. Just in case. Right. But yeah, like I, we went to a senior beta club convention and I had, I sat up in the bathroom until 3 a.m. reading the Da Vinci Code. Because <laughs> um, that's who I was in high school. Yeah. Um, I'm going to interject real quick. I found the part where the consortium provost explains why he forget me now with Langdon. It still doesn't really make sense to me. But let me just do a little bonus dramatic reading for you. As I began to say earlier, much of this started after my agent, Vayenta, who's the one who was fake trying to kill him, pulled you in prematurely. We had no idea how much progress you had made on Dr. Sinsky's behalf or how much you had shared with her. But we were afraid if she learned the location of the project our client had hired us to protect, she was going to confiscate or destroy it. We had to find it before she did, and so we needed you to work on our behalf rather than Sinsky's. Unfortunately, we had already shown our cards, and you most certainly did not trust us. Professor, are you familiar with the family of chemicals known as benzodiazepines? Langdon shook his head, for some reason. They are a breed of pharmaceutical that are used for, among other things, the treatment of post-traumatic stress. As you may know, when someone endures a horrific event like a car accident or a sexual assault, the long-term memories can be permanently debilitating. Through the use of benzodiazepines, neuroscientists are now able to treat post-traumatic stress, as it were, before it happens. Sidebar, I googled this. This is not a recommended practice. (laughs) (laughs) Do not let Dan Brown prescribe you benzos. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Langdon stared at the tiny man in disbelief. You gave me amnesia? 
I'm afraid so. Chemically induced. Very safe. But yes, a deletion of your short-term memory. (laughs) While you were out, you mumbled something about a plague, which we assumed was on account of your viewing the projector images. We we never imagined that Zobris had created a real plague. Uh, Nobody shot you. There was no head wound. Part of the illusion. God, this is... Okay. I guess I see now why I... Why it's confusing. Because it yeah, is confusing. It, it still, like, doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the book. Yeah. I, I want to do a couple of mini rants about science. Okay. Just, Please like, do. real quick. So the first fucking thing. So when we first meet, when we're in Sienna's, in Sienna's apartment, and we don't know what's going on, Kate mentioned that, like, Langdon figures out her backstory from, like, you know, snooping through her house and reading all of these, like, little like newspaper clippings and stuff. And I just want to, to read this real quick. The article contained an, uh, an interview with a doctor who explained that PET scans of Sienna's cerebellum revealed that it was physically different from other cerebella. In her case, a larger, more streamlined organ capable of manipulating visual spatial content in ways that most human beings could not begin to fathom. The doctor equated Sienna's psychological or physiological advantage to an unusually accelerated cellular growth in her brain, much like a cancer, except that it accelerated growth of beneficial brain tissue rather than dangerous cancer cells. And I, it hurts me. It hurts me <laughs> physically. Um, I study cerebellar cancer. Like that's what my thesis is on. And First of all, let me tell you, the cerebellum is the little part at the bottom of your brain that does, like, fine-tuning motor control. You can live without a cerebellum, actually. There's a dude that we just discovered who's, like, in his 30s who just doesn't have a cerebellum. He's not, like, great, but he's, like, okay. Um, (laughs) But, like, I think he meant cerebrum. I think he meant the cortex of your brain where all of learning and memory happens because that's not your cerebellum is not where it happens and also for those of us who don't know the definition of cancer is uncontrolled growth and cancer is not a separate thing from other cells. It always starts as a good cell. It starts as a part of good brain and then it just doesn't listen to the messages that say whoa buddy don't overgrow and it just overgrows. So too much tissue in your brain is always going to be a problem. And streamlining an organ? Okay. 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 I'm fine. Anyway, that was like, that was page 45 of this book. And I was on an airplane on my way to a scientific meeting. And I leaned over to a friend of mine who also studies the cerebellum. And I made her read it. And you should have seen the look that she gave me. I, I wanted to throw it off the airplane, but I figured that probably wasn't the safest option. Um, and the other thing, when they get, when they find, they're in the cistern at the end, and they're like, oh, no, the bubble already burst. We have to figure out how far it spread. They're like, we're going to just, like, stick a sample in our magic PCR machine. And, like, this is, this is very much CSI-type technology, where, like, they put a sample in and then it started blinking red and they did it all over the world and every single thing across the world started blinking red. So yeah, PCR, red is bad. Red is bad. PCR, <laughs> I'm going to make you learn science. I'm going to. I'm sorry. PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. And it is a way of amplifying a small piece of DNA. So you can start with one copy of this DNA 
from anywhere and you can make thousands upon thousands of copies. But you have to know what DNA you're looking for and you have to have what are called primers that match the piece of DNA that you care about. So you can't just, you have to know what you're looking for. So if they don't know what's in his virus, they would not have primers for it and you can't just be like, oh look, we, there's definitely DNA in here and you're limited by the laws of physics as to how fast you can do this. Enzymes can only physically work so fast. So, huh, huh, trust me, if I, could put, if, if I could put a thing in a machine and have it give me an answer within five seconds, I would not be going into my sixth year of grad school. But those are, those are my small, those are my little rants. <laughs> but Excellent. Maybe... Maybe you learned a thing. I did learn. I learned many things. <laughs> I gotta tell you, like, to me reading it, I was just like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you put the virus in the thing, the thing goes ding. Langdon gets his watch back the end. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, in True Believer, she was the archivist and the children's librarian, so I kind of understand your pain. <laughs> <laughs> like that <laughs> i think maybe it's time for some dramatic readings yay all right we are going to start with uh oh i guess we didn't really talk about how langdon spends the entire book mansplaining everything to every woman especially sienna and elizabeth including like within their own specialties and they're never like shut the fuck up, Langdon. They're always like, "Oh wow, that's interesting." Yeah, yeah. Because I I would kind of like it if he was like, "Oh, and here's how like world health works." And Elizabeth is like, "Bitch, I know that's my job." But it's never that. It's like never. There, he's never undercut in his genius. He's always just like, "Yeah, good point." <laughs> so that, and then also, there's so much. Like I, I've said before, I keep saying I enjoyed reading this book. Um, but it, it, there is a ton of just, like, clunky exposition um, that, you know, for, I just basically just skimmed past it. But we'll we'll give you some little samples of that. Um, so here's a part where Langdon and Elizabeth Dr. Sinsky have um, met and sort of explained how they actually are on the same team. Earlier, she um, he noticed her necklace because it was from his vision or whatever, and he was she was like, oh, yeah. Um, as I'm sure you know, because you're a symbologist, it's a caduceus, which is the symbol of doctors. And then here's where we'll jump in shortly after that. And Kate will be um, Dr. Sinsky, and I'll be Robert Langdon. Professor, when I showed you my amulet earlier and called it a caduceus, you paused as if you wanted to say something, but then you hesitated and seemed to change your mind. What were you going to say? Langdon shook his head. Nothing. It's foolish. Sometimes the professor in me can be a little overbearing. Sinsky stared into his eyes. I ask because I need to know I can trust you. What were you going to say? Langdon swallowed and cleared his throat. Not that it matters, but when you said your amulet is the ancient symbol of medicine, which is correct, but when you called it a, a caduceus, you made a very common mistake. The caduceus has two snakes on the staff and wings at the top. Your amulet has a single snake and no wings. Your symbol is called... The rod is of Esculapius. 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 Langdon cocked his head in surprise. Yes, exactly. I know. I was testing your truthfulness. I'm sorry? I was curious to know if you would tell me the truth, no matter how uncomfortable it might make me. 
Sounds like I failed. Don't do it again. Total honesty is the only way you and I will be able to work together on this. Work together? Aren't we done here? No, Professor, we're not done. I need you to come to Florence and help me find something. Langdon stared in disbelief. Tonight? I'm afraid so. I have yet to tell you about the truly critical nature of this situation. Langdon shook his head. It doesn't matter what you tell me. I don't want to fly to Florence. Neither do I, she said grimly. But unfortunately, our time is running out. No. (laughs) Also, like, that's not that unusual of a thing to know. Right, like, I know what a caduceus is, and I'm not a symbologist or a doctor. Yeah, like, if you been to a museum where they have some Greek shit, which is most museums, because we've been stealing that stuff for hundreds of years. Like, it's not that difficult. (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right. The next dramatic reading, I'm going to read Sienna's tragic backstory. Some of it. Some of it. It goes on for a full chapter. So this is after the attempted rape. Sienna left the Philippines at once, without even saying goodbye to the other members of the group. She never once spoke of what had happened to her. She hoped that ignoring the incident would make it fade away, but it seemed only to make it worse. Months later, she was still haunted by night terrors, and she no longer felt safe anywhere. She took up martial arts, and despite quickly mastering the deadly skill of dim mock, she still felt at risk everywhere she went. Her depression returned, surging tenfold, and eventually she stopped sleeping altogether. Every time she combed her hair, she noticed that huge clumps were falling out, more hair every day. To her horror, within weeks she was half bald, having developed symptoms that she self-diagnosed as telegenic effluvium, a stress-related alopecia with no cure other than curing one's stress. Every time she looked in the mirror, though, she saw her balding head and felt her heart race. I look like an old woman. Finally, she had no choice but to shave her head. At least she no longer looked old. She simply looked ill. Not wanting to look like a cancer victim, she purchased a wig, which she wore in a blonde ponytail, and at least looked like herself again. Inside, however, Sienna Brooks was changed. I am damaged goods. In a desperate attempt to leave her life behind, she traveled to America and attended medical school. She had always had an affinity for medicine, and she hoped that being a doctor would make her feel like she was being of service, as if she were doing something at least to ease the pain of this troubled world. Despite the long hours, school had been easy for her, and while her classmates were studying, Sienna took a part-time acting job to earn extra money. The gig definitely wasn't Shakespeare, but her skills with language and memorization meant that instead of feeling like work, acting felt like a sanctuary where Sienna could forget who she was and be someone else, anybody else. Sienna had been trying to escape her identity since she could first speak. As a child, she had shunned her given name, Felicity, in favor of her middle name, Sienna. Felicity meant fortunate, and she knew she was anything but. Remove the focus on your own problems, she reminded herself. Focus on the problems of the world. Her panic attack in the crowded streets of Manila had sparked in Siena a deep concern about overcrowding and world population. It was then that she discovered the writings of Bertrand Zobrist, a genetic engineer who had proposed some very progressive theories about world population. He's a genius, she realized reading his work. Siena had never felt that way about another human being, 
And more of the more of Zobra she read, the more she felt like she was looking into the heart of a soulmate. His article, You Can't Save the World, reminded Sienna of what everybody used to tell her as a child. And yet, Zobris believed the exact opposite. You can save the world, Zobris wrote. If not you, then who? If not now, then when? Sienna studied Zobris' mathematical equations carefully, educating herself on his predictions of a Malthusian catastrophe and the impending collapse of the species. Her intellect loved the high-level speculations, but she felt her stress level climbing as she saw the entire future before her. Mathematically guaranteed. So obvious. Inevitable. Why doesn't anyone else see this coming? Also not the first time in this book that Sienna has said to herself, I am damaged. Yeah, (laughs) nope. (laughs) Not the last either, I don't think. (laughs) Uh, And our final bits of dramatic reading are going to come from the explanation of the virus itself. Okay, so this is uh, towards the end of the book, Sienna explaining the virus that Bertrand created. Robert, she whispered, as soon as this virus was released into the cistern's lagoon, a chain reaction began. Every person who descended into that cavern and breathed the air became infected. They became viral hosts, unwitting accomplices who transferred the virus to others, sparking an exponential proliferation of disease that will now have torn across the planet like a forest fire. By now, the virus will have penetrated the global population. You, me, everyone. Langdon rose from the bench and began pacing frantically before her. And what does it do to us, he repeated. Sienna was silent for a long moment. The virus has the ability to render the human body infertile. She shifted uncomfortably. Virgin created a sterility plague. Her words struck Langdon hard. A virus that makes us infertile? Langdon knew there existed viruses that could cause sterility, but a highly contagious airborne pathogen that could do so by altering us genetically seemed to belong in another world some kind of Orwellian dystopia of the future. Bertrand often theorized about a virus like this, Sienna said quietly, but I never imagined he would attempt to create it, much less succeed. When I got his letter and learned what he has done, I was in shock. I tried desperately to find him, to beg him to destroy his creation, but I arrived too late. Hold on, Langdon interjected. If the virus makes everyone on Earth infertile, there will be no new generations, and the human race will start dying out immediately. Correct, she responded, her voice sounding small, except extinction was not Bertrand's goal. Quite the opposite, in fact, which is why he created a randomly activating virus. Even though Inferno is now endemic in all human DNA and will be passed along by all of us from this generation forward, it will activate only in a certain percentage of people. In other words, the virus is now carried by everyone on Earth and yet it will cause sterility in only a randomly selected part of the population. Just like FYI, like, you can't do that <laughs> genetically. Just like, in case you were wondering, you, like, you can't. Not and the, yet. <laughs> well, the biggest problem is that if he had waited two years to write this book, there's actually a technique um, for genome editing called CRISPR, the CRISPR-Cas9 system that actually you may have even heard of like there's been articles about it in the times and stuff recently because it's a it's a much easier faster way to edit a genome and to edit dna that already exists in your genome instead of having to like add in other dna or edit the dna and then flip it into the genome 
and actually some scientists I think in China had started trying to edit human embryos and there has been a huge like a call in the community for a moratorium on no human testing and everything and that would have been like a great tool to use in this book but uh, I, he didn't actually talk to scientists he talked to uh, MDs and MDs are not usually at the forefront of the technology that is being developed in scientific communities but and then to finish our dramatic readings, I'll talk about uh, this is the the rationale for why we shouldn't try to reverse this virus. Sienna cleared her throat, turned to Sinsky, and spoke in a clear, strong voice. Ma'am, the world of genetic engineering is one I've inhabited with Bertram for many years. As you know, the human genome is an extremely delicate structure, a house of cards. Uh, side note, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> The more adjustments we make, the greater the chances we mistakenly alter the wrong card and bring the entire thing crashing down. My personal belief is that there is an enormous danger in attempting to undo what has already been done. Bertrand was a genetic engineer of exceptional skill and vision. He was years ahead of his peers. At this point in time, I'm not sure I would trust anyone else to go poking around in the human genome, hoping to get it right. If the human genome was a house of cards that would fall down at any wrong move, like, we wouldn't be humans, and we wouldn't have made it this far. Just, like, you know, just just FYI. <laughs> um, what childhood <laughs> game would you say the genome is most like, then? <laughs> is it, like, a skip it? <laughs> <laughs> is it Scrabble? <laughs> is it upwards? <laughs> No, it's upwards. It's definitely upwards. <laughs> Thank yep. you. The human genome is, is upwards. You can quote me on that. <laughs> I will. <laughs> You've gone on the record. <laughs> so, that's this book, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it made me want pizza and sterility. <laughs> so, let's maybe move on to... Would you rather? I would love to play Would You Rather. Would you rather watch your lover slash cult leader fall to his death or have to have a conversation with Robert Langdon? Um, I'm this is really difficult. I'm going to have to talk to Robert Langdon just because I know more about a lot of things than he does. So I could just like science explain right back to him when he art explains at me. Yeah, and he doesn't have an iPhone. I'm also going to choose talk to Robert Langdon. So I could just be on mine the whole time and be like, oh, I'm listening to you. But I'm also checking important email, but really just be like reading Twitter. I, I mean, okay, if if my cult leader falls to his death in front of me, then to me that sort of implies that I could take over the cult. Um, that's not what Sienna really does in this book, but... You know, I feel like if you're the cult leader's lover, you're probably next in line to take over. So I think I'm going to do that. Fair. Yeah. yeah. I can get behind that. I don't think I, I don't know. I don't think that I would join this, like, population control cult, but, or maybe I would have gotten tricked into it, but then when I took over, I would just turn it into something more benign, like, um, like a lolcat cult. Or a cult that worships blue oysters. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to watch out for Roused Hour. <laughs> <laughs> like an Allie McBeal watching muffin baking cult. 
let's uh, <laughs> let's not quote Mystery Science Theater for the rest of this episode. But instead, let's answer the question: Would you rather be rendered infertile or have a miracle baby with Jeremy from True Believer? Uh, infertile all the way, absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, I spend money to be temporarily infertile, so... Right. Let's just take that off the table. uh, I'm missing some important um, Uh, data Uh, for this this question. uh, Jeremy was... uh, True Believer was the Nicholas Sparks book that we did a couple weeks ago, and uh, he was infertile, but then at the end, through true love, uh, and knocked up his lady, and they had a miracle baby. Um, But then in the sequel, the lady died in childbirth, so... Ooh, so I'll just go infernal then, because miracle babies sound dangerous. Yeah, plus Jeremy is really annoying, so you'd have to bone him at least once. Mm. Yeah, that was another one where the ending was like, a big thing in the book was everyone coming to terms with the fact that he was infertile, and there's other ways to make a family, and having a baby biologically isn't what makes you a good parent, and then at the end it's like, just kidding, we're having a miracle baby. (laughs) Yes, because that's how that's how these things work, is that if you believe it hard enough, then it just fixes that thing about you. Yep. yep. If you learn the lesson that you were supposed to learn at the end of the Lifetime original movie, then it, it fixes the thing that was wrong with you. Yeah. And also, he knows the true meaning of Christmas now. Yes. Well, you can't not know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Last up, would you rather be mansplained to by Robert Langdon or be mansplained to by a doomsday overpopulation plague cult leader? Um, I choose the cult leader because I feel like a doomsday overpopulation plague cult is the sort of thing that I would purposely read about on Wikipedia. So I would rather listen to him explain like something that is potentially like kind of interesting. I mean, I'm assuming the implication is I don't have to join the cult. He's just maybe mansplaining to me why I should like he does to Elizabeth in the book. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather hear about that than symbology (laughs) i don't know i kind of like symbology i think i'm just gonna let robert langdon tell me why my necklace is wrong (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i a lot of times i wear a necklace with a tree on it and i guess it's actually a tree of life but i just bought it because it was like a tree and so people talk to me about it all the time and everyone has their own interpretation of it like some people like oh you're jewish right because of the necklace i'm like what and some people are like, oh, Divergent, right? Like, the tree from Divergent? I'm like, I, nope. Um, or some people <laughs> have thought it meant that I was Wiccan. Anyway, so I would kind of be interested in Robert Langdon's take on my tree necklace. Uh, but ultimately, I think I am probably going to go with the cult leader for the same reasons as Kate. And plus, I think that one is more likely to eventually turn into a good story. Like, did I ever tell you about the time I was on a plane next to this plague cult leader? It was crazy. <laughs> I would really, though, Sarah, love to hear Robert Langdon's expert expertise in Harry Potter symbology yeah. explaining your jewelry to you. So <laughs> I'd also like almost to be a fly piece, on the wall. Almost every piece of jewelry I own has a lightning bolt on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll see if we can uh, arrange a meeting for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that I can meet the biggest Mary Sue who ever Mary sued. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to our reader's advisory, where we'll suggest movies or books to read instead of or in addition to Inferno. Um, As I've said all along, I enjoyed this book. 
I'm going to say if you have liked other books and you don't know very much about science, just go ahead and read this. It's fine. Um, I would suggest the Mitchell and Webb sketch that's a parody of the Da Vinci Code called the Number Wang Code. It's very funny. We'll link to it in the as mentioned. But also uh, the Mysterious Benedict Society is a great series and it's a lot of like riddles and puzzle solving and um, the Westing game. The Shades of London series by Maureen Johnson. All the, like, true good read-alikes that I could think of for this were, um, like, children's or YA. And I wonder if that's partly why, like, Dan Brown has cornered this market for adults. Like, I can't really think of too many other people who are doing this kind of, like, art history clue-based, like, Carmen Sandiego type adventure for adults. And there's clearly a market for it, so other adult authors should probably get on that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'll go ahead and say that. Go ahead and read Angels and Demons. Read the Da Vinci Code. I would skip Digital Fortress. I would skip Skeleton Key. But Deception Point is kind of about aliens, so that's sort of cool. Um, if you're just if you like this, the sort of the fast pace. If if you like his his uh, formula, which I do, it works. You know, consistently well, and the um, all of those other books don't have genetics in them. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if they're like really bad at what they're talking about, I don't know about it. But also, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and National Treasure both go in this same like it scratches the same itch for me um, that these books do. So de- always watch National Treasure, like always. I'm also gonna throw out um, the Librarian TV movies, and then also the Librarians. Uh, TV show, which are uh, just knockoffs of Indiana Jones, basically, but with librarians instead of archaeologists. Uh, as a librarian, I would say they're very realistic, very true <laughs> to my day-to-day. Like, I have no quarrels with their portrayal of librarians whatsoever, and uh, just really, really fun, uh, enjoyable uh, library-related tasks happening. Oh, and uh, The Mummy. That's a good library and history and... Uh... Problem solving movie as well. Mm -hmm. Also, um, I was describing this book to our producer, Rebecca, this morning, who is also my roommate, and all like the double and triple crosses. And she said, Oh, you mean like the episode of Community where Jeff is taking a fake night class and about conspiracy theories and is trying to double cross the dean to convince him that he should get the credit? And then Annie is helping him, but really Annie is working with the dean to teach him a lesson. And there's like a quadruple cross scene in the library with fake guns and it's amazing so watch that it's like that it's also like uh the first episode i think of ntsf sd suv which is on adult swim uh there's there's a lot of parodies of this i think basically in our culture and with good reason yes all right we'll have this list and some other stuff we didn't get around to talking to up on our website worstbestsellers.com and now we'll move on to tell you our candy pairings for this book uh, mine's black licorice. It just, it seems, you know, it's got a little bit of a hint of the plague, and I think that Dante would just really be into it. <laughs> I'm going to need a footnote on that. Citation <laughs> <laughs> needed. Uh, I'm going to say, my family used to get this, like, mixed set of Italian ices from Sam's Club, and my favorite was always the cotton candy flavor, which I feel like is not actually very authentically Italian, but it's really delicious. (laughs) And so I'll say this book is that. 
Uh, my office is across the street from an Asian supermarket, and a lot of times my coworkers will go over there and they'll buy boxes of candy and then they'll eat some and leave the leftovers in the break room in this bucket. And so it's all these like random, unidentified pieces of candy with no identifying information, all different shapes, colors, sizes in this bucket, and I'll just go by a lot of times and grab a handful. So... Uh, you know, something that I don't understand, but I can't stop eating anyway. Excellent. And now we'll move on to play our favorite game, The Rock, Paper, Snicked, in which Kate will explain who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book. And I will say who Wolverine, who is a character who I think is very scientifically accurate, um, (laughs) (laughs) who he would be if he were in this book. And uh, Sarah will will pick uh, either The Rock or Snicked as our winner, or Paper, which would be to leave the book unaltered. Okay. If The Rock were in this book, he would be this guy near the end who gives Langdon a ride when he's chasing after Sienna in Istanbul. And uh, he'd be somewhat alarmed by Langdon's presence and commands, but he's a good dude, and he has no problem helping someone out in an emergency. So, you know, he'll take Langdon in his car and follow that bus, like Langdon says. Mm-hmm. And he's a little spooked by the frantic calls to the police and the insistence that something wrong is wrong with the water, uh, but he knows better than to get involved. So after he and Langdon part ways, he spends a few tense days uh, waiting for people to get really sick in the aftermath of all of this happening. And during that time, he reflects on his life and what he really wanted to do and decides when it's clear no one is like dying of Ebola or anything in the city streets that he's going to reach for his dream. So he retires to the mountains where he becomes an accomplished artist and holds retreats for local children where he teaches them to paint and sculpt. And he also keeps pet rabbits. And he's very happy. Imagine Dwayne The Rock Johnson holding a baby rabbit. Now you're happy, too. I'm so happy. (laughs) Your wordplay worked. (laughs) You're a witch. (laughs) All right. Well, um, the baby rabbits. It's so tiny compared to how big Dwayne The Rock Johnson is. (laughs) So anyway, if Wolverine were in this book... You know, he would be somehow sent by, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. or X-Men or, like, somebody to work with the the World Health Organization's secret soldier team. Actually, I think maybe there was a Center for Disease Control secret soldier team. Whatever. He's with those secret soldiers, like he does. Um, and since he's actually immune to viruses and all that because of his mutation, he kind of takes the point on that. And... Uh, while while trying to get some answers out of Robert Langdon, he would um, punch him in the face and pretend like it was because he was confused by all the double crossing. But it's really just because Robert Langdon is pretty punchable and Wolverine can tell that. Um, then he would go ahead and call in his bros, Moira McTaggart, uh, the comics one, not the movie one, and Hank McCoy to help out with the science team because they're pretty good at nonsense, genetics related scientific happenings. Um, so they they would actually solve this virus problem while Wolverine's busy getting drunk on the booze he stole from that recovering alcoholic guy from the consortium. <laughs> oh, man. First of all, I do love Wolverine calling in Hank on this. Um, there was a line in a fic once that was like, call everyone we know named Hank <laughs> um, to help solve a problem. Oh, oh but I can't, I can't pass up. Dwayne the Rock Johnson holding a baby rabbit. No, I, how could I think you? that that's that's gotta 
I gotta have to go rock. Excellent. Understand. I, I may have I may have played a little dirty there, but <laughs> it's for the good of all of us. Now we have that image in our heads. It's true. So um, the moral of the story is uh, Dwayne Rock Johnson should hold a baby rabbit at all times. Yes. Um, but also, you know, the moral that I came up with is that art history saves lives, but it doesn't really. <laughs> <laughs> It kind of does. I don't know. Art history might help you out a little bit. I'll amend my moral. <laughs> uh, my moral of the story was, we're all going to die. Shrug emoticon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. My moral of the story kind of combo- combines both of those. Uh, overpopulation is going to destroy civilization as we know it. Or maybe it's not and we're fine. Or maybe it is. Who knows? You know, as a symbologist, I wonder what Robert Langdon's take on the shrug emoticon is. I bet he's published a paper about it. He has a prezi (laughs) that he uses in his classes. Oh my god, okay, this is real late in the game, but I just wanted to say one thing that happened a lot in this book was whenever Langdon was gonna mansplain something, he would flash back to him explaining it to a class and then explain it again, like, in real time. Or sometimes, like, that was just, like, a narrative dump. It was like, here's, like, yeah, here's me giving my Prezi to my class. And then he told the same thing to Sienna. It's like, why wouldn't you just have her say, why why this? Yeah, that was really weird. <laughs> that's, that's to help out the screenwriter when they go to make the movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or just, like, you know, he's so good at explaining stuff. It seems like a waste to have him only explain it to Sienna. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> that with that last thought shed from my brain, let's move on to Duarte's corner, where my cat Duarte will take a moment to express his opinions about the book. <coughs> you know, Duarte, that's pretty harsh, even for you. I don't. I think you should consider who it is that pays for your cat food and for your lodging when you say that you think the world would be better without humans. Frankly. Yeah, I mean, I also was disappointed in the ending, but not because billions of people didn't die, just because I thought it was anticlimactic. So, uh, you know, get off of my side. You're making my side look bad. (laughs) And leave the baby rabbits alone, Duarte. Yeah, God. Look, we all know that you would like to be the head of a plague cult. (laughs) Like, we got that. You didn't even have to say it. (laughs) But I can tell that you would have run a much tighter ship than Bertrand Zobris did. Yes, that's true. Yeah, not nearly as many clues left lying around. You just would have done did it. And if he had jumped off of a tall building, he would have landed on his feet. Oh, yeah, with eight lives left, for sure. (laughs) All right, well, still, thanks thanks for your opinion, Duarte, even if it did seem a little bit harsh. Um, And now, do any humans have any closing thoughts? Not particularly. No, but uh, just, like, if you ever read a science thing and you want to know if it's legit or not, come come ask me. I'll tell you. <laughs> it's true. Sarah Bader reads all of my X-Men fanfic when I mention science. <laughs> I There was a time in, in X-Men fandom that I just wanted to be like, hey, hey, anybody who wants to write about genetics, just come here. We'll have, we'll have a chat. <laughs> all right. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining us and sharing all of your science expertise with our listeners. Oh, no problem. It's 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 very fun. I'm sure you could hear my teeth grinding the whole time. <laughs>
Yeah, well, next week we're going to have a dentist as our guest, so um, maybe <laughs> you can get some feet. We're not really. <laughs> <laughs> FYI. But we you will be all. back in two weeks with the book Black Hills by Nora Roberts. Um, and in the time between now and then, you can follow us on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S. You can like us on Facebook at Worst Bestsellers spelled normally. Um, you can find us on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you do listen to us through either of those services, please take a moment to rate and review us so that we don't have to sacrifice you to a plague doomsday cult. Yeah. Feel free to use as many emojis as you'd like in your reviews. Um, we like that kind of symbology. It's true. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at 14 across. You can follow me on Twitter at Renata Snacks. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at all that I have met. If you want to hear me cry about Captain America. And if you are actually interested in science, you can follow me at Sarah in Bay. And I will from now on be posting some science writing on the blog genes to genomes.org, which you can check out. Yay. Science. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. 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 Oh, I fucked it up already. Just like a woman. <laughs>